Well, once again this evening, our reading is taken from 2 Peter and that opening chapter, 2 Peter chapter 1. As I mentioned this morning, we're staying with that theme today that I entitled Heaven's Treasury of Exceeding Great and Precious Promises. So we're reading again from this passage in which we find that wonderful phrase, 2 Peter chapter 1 and the first one, Simon Peter a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power have given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that have called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, had to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. May the Lord add his divine blessing to this reading from his inspired and precious truth. Well, I'd like you, please, to open your Bibles again at 2 Peter and the chapter 1. We're coming back this evening to our theme for today. And I have to say to you, this is a subject that has been loved by the saints of God from generation to generation, the exceeding great and precious promises. See, it Spurgeon said, the sight of the promises themselves is good for the eyes of faith. The more we study the words of grace, the more grace we shall derive from the words. I highlighted two areas this morning. We dealt with the source and the seal of the promises. They are the promises of God sealed to us by the blood of the everlasting covenant. And then the strength and the security of these promises. They are the promises of the God who cannot lie. We can say with Isaac Watts, and he was a lover of the promises, 
His every word of grace is strong as that which built the skies. The voice that rules the stars along speaks all the promises. Now, thirdly, tonight I want to come to the simplicity and sufficiency of the promises. The simplicity and the sufficiency of the promises. It is Peter, in the closing verses of this letter, in the third chapter, in the verse 16, tells us that there are things in the scriptures of truth that are hard to be understood. You'll just notice he didn't say impossible to be understood, but hard to be understood. But surely we would expect nothing else in what is the book of God. This is the book of divine revelation. In 1 Corinthians 2 and 10, we read about the deep things of God. And certainly there are deep doctrines in this book. In Hebrews chapter 5, we read of how Paul desired to open up the strong meat of the word concerning Melchizedek. But he tells us that he could not do that because those to whom he was writing were yet babes in spiritual understanding. Again, there are prophecies in this book. Indeed, it bears the title, The Word of Prophecy. But there are prophecies, and they are couched in mysterious symbolic language. You immediately, when you begin to think of Ezekiel and Daniel, and particularly the book of the Revelation. But when it comes to the promises of God, such is not the case. There is no complexity of any kind. Rather, the Holy Spirit employs the simplest words and phrases, concise, plain, unmistakable language. The simplicity of the promises. And I can go on just to say a few things briefly and quickly to you about that. The promises are easy to understand. Who could struggle to understand Hebrews 13, 5? I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. A little child can understand Isaiah 40, 11, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. What troubled and distressed child of God finds it difficult to grasp such promises as Psalm 55 and 22, cast thy burden upon the Lord, he shall sustain thee. Or 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. What a precious promise it is. If someone said to me after 50 years and more in the ministry, what text above all texts have you seen adorning the wall of the believer's home? I would say 1 Peter 5 and 7. 
What about that precious promise of Isaiah 41 and 13? For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Now we all know the significance of the holding of a hand, don't we? In the darkness of the evening, the little girl out with mummy feels a little bit fearful of the shadows, and she says, Mummy, hold my hand. What a difference it makes. And many a time I've gone in to the deathbed scene in the hospital. The family are gathered, and there on the right and there on the left is the loved ones. What are they doing? They're holding the hand of that one that is stricken with illness unto death. And God says, I'll hold your right hand. Well, I'm glad for the simplicity of the promises, but especially for the simplicity of gospel promises. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My come. Come. What a simple blessed word of gospel invitation and promise that is. Promise that meant so much to me in the early days of grace. Him that cometh to me. That's what a Christian is. Him that cometh to me, the Savior said, I will in no wise cast out. Have you come? Oh yes, you've come to church tonight and we're glad to welcome you. Well, have you come to Christ? Have you come to the Savior? I am the door, the Savior said. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Now, the boys and girls grasp that promise. One door and only one, yet at sides are two, inside, outside. On which side are you? Another promise that meant so much to me as a young man ushered out of the darkness of atheism into the marvelous light of the gospel. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I never believed in the reality of the devil. But from the moment I was saved, I came to experience that reality. Bless God for such a promise. They're easy to understand, the simplicity of the promises. They're easy to find. Listen to this amazing uh, statement of John Bunyan. The pathway of life is strewn so thickly with the promises of God that it is impossible to take one step without treading upon one of them. I'm going to come back to that shortly. F.B. Meyer said the Bible contains many thousands of promises. It is God's book of sign checks. And that was the thought, of course, that inspired C.H. Spurgeon to give us that marvelous little book that some Christians read every year until they go home to glory. They read it again and again and checkbook. You see, they're easy to plead. As Spurgeon says, the believer is to treat the promise as a check and believingly present the promise to the Lord as a man presents a check at the counter of the bank. 
The great commentator Matthew Henry says God's promises are to be our pleas in prayer. Now, young person, saved by the grace of God tonight, do you struggle to pray? Oh, I struggle to pray. Dr. Paisley advised me to do something that sort of shocked me when he said it. He said, Michael, pray with your eyes open. And then he explained he wanted me to get on my knees and open my Bible and read my Bible. And when I came to a promise in that Bible to read it out to the Lord and say, I believe it. Lord, fulfill that word in my heart and in my life. The psalmist said, Psalm 119, verse 49, Remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. I mentioned David this morning sitting before the Lord, 2 Samuel 7, absolutely overwhelmed at the greatness of the promises that God was giving to him. And yet there we find David pleading those promises. And he pleads them just with these simple words, Do as thou hast said. Do as thou hast said. You've noticed already today I've been quoting the Puritans and I love the Puritans and many of them have the most quaint way of putting things. Here's one great quote from William Gurnall. Faith melts promises into arguments as the soldier doth lead into bullets. That's a great quote. We're to turn the promises into pleas in prayer. The simplicity of the promises. Yes, simple, but they're sublime. That brings us to the sufficiency of the promises. Because you'll notice in verse 4, Peter's descriptive terms, they're great and precious. Now, those are terms that do not often come together. Because great things are not always precious. And precious things are not always great. But they come together here. And then, of course, you'll notice the other adjective. They are exceeding great and precious. Exceeding great and precious. Well, they certainly are in number. Now, some have tried to compute the number of the promises in the Bible. In fact, here in my Bible, I only... Notice this again today. I've got down the figure of 30,000. And you'll find that often quoted in different places. It gives me difficulty. You say, why? Because there are only 31,173 verses in the Bible. So I'm not sure how they get to that kind of figure. But there was a Canadian school teacher, Everett R. Storms, And he was a lover of the promises of God. And he set himself the task of going through the Bible, writing out all of those promises to God's people. It took him 18 months. And he came up with a figure of 8,810 promises to God's people. Well, suffice to say, there are thousands of promises this blessed book. But these are exceedingly great and precious, not as so much for their number, wonderful though that is, 
but because of their nature. Interesting here in verses 3 and 4, you'll notice that verb given. I mentioned it this morning, the promises of grace. But this is a very different word from the word that is found throughout our New Testament. This word only occurs here and at the end of Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 45. It is a stronger word and it has a meaning in it. Let me quote. It always carries a certain regal sense, describing an act of large-handed generosity. And we see that in the nature of the promises of God. Let me illustrate it with the well-known story concerning Alexander the Great. He desired to honor one of his favorites, and he did so with a most magnificent gift. And the response was immediate. This is too much for me to receive. And Alexander replied, it is not too much for me to give. You remember how this morning we just thought about the exclamation of David? Who am I, O Lord God, that thou shouldst give to me in my house such promises? You know, in the context here of Second Peter chapter 1, these are promises that pertain, as we saw this morning, to life and to godliness. These are the promises of spiritual wealth, of those unsearchable riches of Christ. These are the promises whereby we enter into the experience and the enjoyment of those unsearchable riches. And have you noted how often they're couched in superlative terms? As I say, this is the first time I never preached on this subject through my ministry until after retirement, until recently studying it at the end of last year. But you think of the promises of God. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19. We all know that promise. My God shall supply all your need according to. Those are important words. According to his riches and glory. It's not just simply out of, but according to. According to the capital of the Royal Bank of Heaven. I've been struggling to come up with an illustration to convey what I'm driving at here. This is not the best illustration, but here's a man of immense wealth. And he's in one of the cities of our nation, and there's a, a man, and he's down and out, he's filthy. And as he's passing by, there's something of pity in the wealthy man. And he goes over, he opens his wallet, and he counts out 10, 50-pound notes. Well, certainly he has given out of his riches. But here's another wealthy man. He comes along. He gets down beside this dear man, and he... Here's how he was brought to such a low estate. He's lost everything. 
very much alone in the world. And this man says, you're coming home with me. And he takes him home. He gets him cleaned up. He provides him with clothes. He looks after him. He keeps, his, keeps him in the house. He gets him back on his feet. He takes and does whatever is needful for this man to be fully restored, to have a good job, to be working again, to make his way. And you can say, well, that wealthy man, he's giving according to his riches. I don't know if that helps you to see the point I'm trying to make, but the promises are so often couched in superlative terms. For example, we preach salvation. But it's so great salvation. So great. Now isn't that a theme for any preacher? So great. Oh, it's the plan of divine wisdom. For poor, ruined, wretched, guilty sinners such as we, God in his wisdom defies means where we could be restored and reconciled to himself. And that means was the sending of his son and sparing him not, but delivering him up to the death of the cross. So great salvation. Think again of that price that was paid for at the shedding of the Savior's blood. The anguish of dark Calvary. What a price. Think of the pardon that's held out in it. Think of the privileges that come as a consequence of it. Oh, you see, it's so great salvation. It's salvation to the uttermost. I mentioned pardon there just moments ago. We read in the Bible, abundant pardon. For I must hasten on. We have the promise of life, but it's eternal life. It's life more abundant. We're promised peace, but it's perfect peace. It's the peace of God that passeth all understanding. We're promised victory, but it's to be more than conquerors. We're promised answers to our prayers, exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. We have the promise of revival. It's to pour out such a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. The promises of grace to us, it's grace sufficient. Just turn for a moment to 2 Corinthians 9 8. I think this is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible as far as the promise of God's grace is concerned. 2 Corinthians 9, and there in the verse 8. Remember, we're thinking of the promises couched in superlative terms. And notice this, verse 8, and God is able. How often we read that in our Bible. God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye always, just notice these words, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. I think that's one of the most astounding verses in the Bible. The promises of grace. Oh, the simplicity and the sufficiency of these promises. Well, finally, we come to the scope 
and the suitability of the promises, the scope and the suitability of the promise. Now, that's a massive subject. Probably shouldn't say that. You might think you'll be here for another hour, but it is a massive subject because the comprehensiveness and the boundless diversity with regard to the promises of Scripture is staggering. You know, we read in 1 Timothy 4 and 8, Godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. The Puritan Dr. Samuel Clark penned the classic on this subject. And if you've got this book, I have never seen it. I asked Dr. John Douglas if he had it. Well, Dr. John Douglas is 90. And uh, he couldn't recall, and certainly if he could recall, he wasn't sure if it was in one of his boxes because he doesn't have a place big enough to put out his books. I've never seen a copy of this book. But let me tell you, he takes hundreds of pages to classify thousands of Bible promises. Now, let me illustrate this by this. In the chapter entitled, Promises of Spiritual Blessings in This Life, there are 24 main divisions and 46 subdivisions. Now, if I had that many, we'd be here for breakfast. Never mind supper tonight. I just want to convey to you, it's a staggering subject when we come to the scope and suitability of the promises. And the wisdom of God is seen wondrously in the precision with which the promises of His Word are so contrived as to cover every conceivable circumstance and address all of the varied needs of his people on their pilgrimage to glory. Again, we stand in awe at the wisdom of God. You see, again and again, saints will discover that the promises fit us just as a key fits the lock. And there will always be an appropriate promise for us. We turn to Abraham this morning. We're going to do that very quickly now. And I do want you to turn this up, especially the young people. I want you to turn up Genesis chapter 15. We're looking again at Abraham. This is just wonderfully illustrative of the point tonight. Remember, he is the father of all them that believe. Genesis chapter 15. Just notice with me the opening words of Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things. What things? The dramatic offense recorded in chapter 14. There had been a confederacy of certain kings. It resulted in the sacking of Sodom. Lot and his family were taken captive. This led to the bold and courageous intervention of Abraham with only, as we read, 318 trained servants. And yet in verse 16 of that chapter, we read, And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods, and the woman also, and the people. And at the end of the chapter, we read of the grateful king of Sodom coming out and he was seeking to reward Abraham for what he had done. 
And you'll notice with me verse 22, And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and all that I will not take anything that is thine, lest I should say, I have made Abraham rich. Abraham refused all. And so we read in verse 1 of chapter 15, after these things, did you notice it? The word of the Lord came. That's the first time in the Bible. And yet you'll know how often that significant phrase, it permeates the Hebrew Scriptures, and it was a word of promise. Notice, fear not. And again, that's the first time that occurs in the Bible. And how many, many times we have it in the Bible. Because we're all prone to give way to fearfulness, to become anxious, to be disturbed. Here it is for the first time, fear not. Undoubtedly, Abraham had that apprehensiveness that those defeated kings would gather again together and they would seek revenge against him. And so God came with the promise. Fear not. Why, Abraham? I am thy shield. I am your protection. I'm the shield. But that's not all. Did you notice? Abraham nobly and sacrificially refused to be enriched by the king of Sodom. And notice now, here's the word of promise. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Abraham, you'll be no loser. You've honored me. I'm your exceeding great reward. It was just the promise Abraham needed. It just fitted him like the hand in the glove, like the key in the lock. And I say again to you, there will always be in this book, no matter what circumstances overtake you, no matter how dark the night, no matter how painful and perplexing the providences, no matter how fierce the storm, there will always be in this book promise suitable for you, appropriate to you. The scope and the suitability of the promises. Now in the light of that, as I close, may I say that I think there are four simple duties that lie upon us. First of all, we need to mark the promises. Now I did that literally from the moment I was saved. Could have brought them because I've kept them. I have two Bibles. They've fallen apart. Literally fallen apart. They've great sentimental value, of course. And I could open them and you would just see underlined in red the promises. And when I get another copy of the Scriptures, I take my time to go through and underline the promises that I've underlined for over 50 years. You see, we need to become acquainted with the promises, the spiritual inventory of them. William Gurnall said, the wise Christian will store himself with promises. Then we need to memorize them. Do you remember those words of the psalmist? Remember the word unto thy servant, upon which thou caused me to hope. It was evidently a word of promise that the psalmist had stored away in his memory. Memorize them. May I say to the young people, for me? Now, if my wife Carol was here, she would just tell you how dreadful 
my memories. Many a time I'm walking around the Eurospar that's just about three minutes from my front door. And if you went and said to me, are you looking for something? I would say, I can't remember what the wife wanted. I've walked three minutes, max. It's just gone out of my head and I'm looking at the shelves trying to see if it does trigger. Many a time I've come home and she said, did you bring it? I'm way up again. You need to use your memory when you're young. So you young people, you young Christians, make it your business to store up your memory with the promises of God. Memorize them. And then you need to meditate on them like Mary. Remember that she pondered them in her heart. Little questions. Who was the promise given to? When was it given? Why was it given? And what's given in that promise? And then, of course, we need to make those promises our own. Listen to Spurgeon again. A promise is not meant that the Christian should read it over comfortably and then have done with it. No, he is by faith to accept it as his own. Now in Hebrews 11, we were in it this morning, concerning the men and women of faith, they were persuaded of the promises and embraced them. Those are wonderful words. They were persuaded of the promises and they embraced them as their own. D.L. Moody said, God makes a promise. Faith believes it. Hope anticipates it. And patience quietly awaits it. And you know, that really sums up Hebrews 11. And how clear it is, as pointed out this morning, that these exceeding great and precious promises lie at the heart of vital Christian experience. You'll notice there in 2 Peter 1 that we might know their sanctifying power to escape the corruption that is in the world through lust and then to exhibit those graces spoken of, verses 5 through to 7. In order to that, we must lay hold on the promises. Appropriate them. Plead them. You know the old story, I'll not tell the whole story for time is fleeing away, of the Scottish minister going into a saintly old woman who wasn't too well, and she reached out his Bible, her Bible to him and said, read me some verses, sir, and he was thumbing through the Bible and he saw in the margin these single letters, and there was one or two places he noticed immediately, T and P, and then he turned to T and P, and then and he just asked her, what's T and P? And she said, well, you'll notice that they're always next to a promise. It just simply means tried and proved. That's what we are to do. We're to appropriate these promises. Spurgeon said, make it your own. Take it boldly and say, this is mine. In a moment or two, we'll sing that hymn. And it's in the hymn. In these words, there is a book whose promises I all my life may plead. They shine like stars above the night of my exceeding need. But what can I say as I close if someone here is yet unsaved? Because this Bible says you're a stranger to the covenants of promise. And then these awful words, having no 
How many of the promises of God hold out hope? The hope of glory. The hope of that eternal reward to every Christian. But those who are strangers to the covenants of promise have no hope. I earlier drew your attention to the simplicity and the sufficiency of those promises. I chose those words. Step out in the promise. Get under the blood. Oh, will you do that tonight? Will you respond to the gospel promise? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt be saved. Him that cometh to me, will you come? I will in no wise cast out. You know, the night I was saved, as I said this morning, perhaps, I just couldn't believe, I just couldn't get my head around it, that I could be a Christian. I said it over and over again to Dr. Paisley. I just couldn't be a Christian. And the moment I bore witness to all my old companions, they were very quick to say to me, to quote one of them, of everybody, you couldn't be a Christian, Patrick. But you see, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Do you know Isaac Watts, I said to you maybe today, can't remember morning or evening. He was a lover of the promises. He wrote the foreword to the Puritan's work on the promises. And this is what he said, I believe the promises of God enough to venture an eternity on them. Will you? Will you? What about eternity? How uncertain life is. We know not what a day may bring forth. And then we're gone in an instant. And we're in God's eternity. Oh, will you step out on the promise and get under the blood?